Well, good morning, everyone. It is an honor to be here. Dr. Dobson, Shirley, thank you so much for the invitation. And let me tell you, I am excited uh, to hear from Victor Marks here in a little bit. I never met Victor or heard of him until uh, the Charlie Kirk uh, Turning Point event uh, we both were speaking at last month out in San Diego and talking about men's men. You know, we need some real men in Christianity anymore. And uh, he is certainly a man's man. As a matter of fact, Victor, are you here yet this morning? Are you in here this morning? He just got back. Did he make it back from Israel? He did? Well, very good. Well, I tell you what, if, if you aren't already, we are supporting, a no, our church is supporting a number of, of Messianic and Christian ministries operating inside Israel, and his is one that I want to add to our list. If I can get the slides up here, I'll introduce you to myself uh, in case uh, Bob didn't do a, a, a thorough enough job, but pictures sometimes help. So if I can, let's see, are we working here? The new PowerPoint slides are always a challenge. Oh, it's behind. Wow. Oh, I'm up here. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, you guys had me fooled. I thought, there I got it. Now I got it there. Well, I, I did play. Now, for those of you, a little football trivia. How many of you recognize the guy that's in the picture there with me? How many of you knew that Jimmy Johnson began his head coaching career at Oklahoma State University back in 1979? So JJ is actually, he recruited me to uh, play college football. And of course he went on to, I, rumor has it, he had a little bit of success at the University of Miami Hurricane. And then, I don't know, some team called the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know, I try to keep up with them. But uh, then I was drafted by uh, the Chicago Bears, the defending world champion Chicago Bears, and had the privilege, as, as Bob said, of playing with some uh, Hall of Famers and some legends. You know, Dick Butkus would travel with us in our games because he has worked for WGN. Gail Sayers would come by just to say hi to the guys and be around Hallis Hall. So that was really a privilege to be a part of that family. And then at the age of 37, I was called into ministry. And I understand my father was a bivocational pastor, so I love pastors. I walked an aisle and trusted Christ when I was six years old. I love pastors, but having been a pastor's son, I saw what the work entailed, and I never wanted to be a pastor. As a matter of fact, most days now, I still don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> That explains why I'm so bold in the pulpit. I've been trying to get fired for 23 years, but they refuse to do so. But I'm a retired NFL football player. Uh, I had a, a, my own business in Oklahoma City, and I was serving as a volunteer youth pastor in our youth ministry in our church at the time when God called me clearly. And at the age of 37, uh, my wife and I, uh, well, my wife gave me great counsel because uh, you know I didn't want to be a pastor. She didn't want to be a pastor's wife, so we agreed on that deal. Um, but she said, if God is calling, that's where we need to be because the safest place to be is in God's will. And of course, having my background, I've had an unusual opportunity to, to be around the country and, and participate in a number of different events, even got to teach about biblical economics that the pilgrims brought with them to the new world and biblical civil government on Glenn Beck's show with his chalkboard. And those of you that know him know he is very selfishly greedy over his chalkboard. So I count that a privilege. As Bob said, detoured with throat cancer back in 2019. And that was not a pleasant journey as many of you know, but I am now considered a cancer survivor. And a good friend of mine came to work on our staff there uh, five years ago. And we work together with Liberty Church of Edmond and now a satellite branch in Liberty Orlando. But Bob mentioned, I've got some good news. It tracks right what, what you've been hearing the last couple of days, but we are trying to respond to it as we have done. In fact, next week in Hershey, Pennsylvania, a week from today, we begin our last Liberty Pastors training camp of the year. We bring 100 pastors at a time together with their wives into a luxury hotel, and we hold them hostage there for three days. We want them to have great fellowship, get to meet one another and love each other. Uh, uh, and 
and have a second honeymoon. Because, you know, most pastors only pastor churches that run around 75 to 100 people. So most of them can't afford to come to a place like the Broadmoor or something like that. So we reward them. We want to be a blessing to them. But in return, they give us 20 hours of their time for continuing education. And we teach them to think biblically in areas of their life that seminary taught them not to think biblically. So we begin our camps with this question, and I'll start my remarks this Sunday morning with you with the same question. What part of your life is Jesus not the Lord over? The answer is obvious, ladies and gentlemen. He's supposed to be the Lord of all of our lives. Therefore, there should be nothing off limits in our preaching and disciple making at church. Jesus is not just the Lord of Sunday morning. Jesus is the Lord of our families, as Dr. Dobson and Shirley know. He's the Lord of education. He's the Lord of our work habits. He's the Lord of our work ethics, all of you business owners. He's the Lord of our sex lives. He's the Lord of our, how we handle money in the realm of economics. He is the Lord of our politics. Jesus is Lord of all. So why is it that we compartmentalize our lives? Why do we believe that there are subjects that can't be talked about in church? Well, I'm going to explain that to you this morning. Uh, and, and let me just say this. Your pastor has been trained to think this way. And Eric Metaxas was right when what he said last night, this concept is a lie straight from the pit of hell that the church has bought hook, line, and sinker. Now, let me explain. There's no question that early on the church at Pentecost was 100% Jewish. They had a Jewish worldview with a great knowledge of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, uh, ironically, Andy Stanley, the only Bible that the New Testament church had for about two decades was what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus would have used to teach the disciples and those on the road to Emmaus how it all spoke about him. That's the Bible that the Apostle Paul would have been debating over in Jewish synagogues throughout Asia and Europe. The Tanakh was the only Bible for the New Testament church for about two decades. As a matter of fact, the question of the early church was not about baptism or the work of the Holy Spirit. The question among the early church was about circumcision. Christianity was treated as just another sect of Judaism by the Romans. At the time of Jesus, there were 24 sects, S-E-C-T-S, or I would say denominations among Judaism. You're familiar with many of them. There were the Pharisees. There were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, there were the Herodians, and now you had this new group called the Nazarenes, all gathering together under the umbrella of the temple in Jerusalem. Christianity was Jewish to its very core. In fact, the question was not whether a Jew could become a Christian, it was whether a Gentile could become a Christian. But as the church grew into Asia and Europe, and after the destruction of Jerusalem, I'm telling you, I, I love Eric Metaxas. I'll be honest with you, I've never read any of his books. I just know the work that he does. And we've spoken at many events together, but I've never really met him. We visited for a little bit in the gym yesterday, and I shared this little bit with him. But he is spot on with all of his conclusions and all that he's deduced from what he's observed. But he, he doesn't know about this point. Uh, but, but, but this is uh, the church, as the church grew exponentially through across Asia, after the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem, 
after the Hebrew apostles died off, with John being the last living apostle, the Greek line of thought affected the thinking of the church. In fact, much of the New Testament addresses the error of Gnosticism as the apostles warned against this heresy in their many epistles. Now understand what this Greek line of thought was. The Greeks viewed the world in two compartments or two spheres. There was the spiritual world and there was the material world. The spiritual was good and could be redeemed, but the material world was inherently, irredeemably, and wicked. Well, this led to the logical conclusion, but heresy in the early church, that Christ could not have actually come in the flesh. How could he, which is holy, become a part of this irredeemable, unholy material world? So they had a number of theories. Some theorized that Jesus was actually a phantom spirit, wasn't really there. If he was walking along a seashore, he wouldn't leave prints in the sand because he was just this phantom spirit. Others theorized that the spirit of the Messiah came upon this man, Jesus of Nazareth, at his baptism by John the Baptist in, Gal in the Jordan River, and then departed the body of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as he hung on the cross. But either way, you, they came to the conclusion that the word had not become flesh and, and, and given his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, that his blood had not been poured out for our atonement, that the resurrection did not, he wasn't actually raised from the dead, declaring our justification. So this obviously, this Gnostic thought was heresy uh, theologically, but it was also um, ungodly in practice. In fact, they were pushing the theory or the concept that you can sin all you want to in your body as long as your spirit was pure. That's what John was addressing in 1 John, addressing that error head on. But again, this led to the concarnalization between the spiritual world and the material world. And we have adopted the same mindset in modern day America as we have compartmentalized Christianity. Much like a picnic plate, we keep our Christianity, if I can have the next slide please, we keep our Christianity in its proper place, but we don't dare let Christianity spill over and influence any other sphere of our lives. That obviously is our secular life and the spiritual realm doesn't belong there. Christianity has become something that we do on Sunday morning, but we don't let our church thing interfere with real life in the material world. We have our spiritual life. I thought it was amazing. Eric mentioned this last night and I said, he's either reading my material or I'm reading his. I don't know who it is. But we have our spiritual life where we place all of our sacred things that we can talk about in church. By the way, this box is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Then we have reality, which is our physical life, which is reserved for secular thinking. And we can't talk about those things in church. But the Hebraic mindset, ladies and gentlemen, was they understood that God created the material world world and the spiritual world. Therefore, Rabbi Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, you are to do to the glory of God. Paul again said, glorify God in your body, i.e. the material world, and in your spirit, the spiritual world, as they both belong to God. So salvation and subsequent lordship was understood in the Hebrew mentality. You cannot separate, separate them. Let me give you another example. I was sitting uh, next to a, a wonderful gentleman, I think Craig, the other night, we were talking on our opening night, and he brought up the Shema. The Shema is the John 3.16 of Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, Shema Jezreel, hear, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord your God, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
This is the passage of scripture that they put on the masseuses that they hang on the doorpost. This is the passage of scripture that's inside the Teflon when they put their prayer boxes on their foreheads and on their, on their hands. This is the fundamental, it's, the, it's a, a rededication of life twice a day. It's a pledge of allegiance done twice a day in the morning and evening. But understand in biblical Hebrew, there are only about 7,000 words. In modern day American English, we have about 100,000 words that we use. So when you're studying the Bible and you go back and you look in the Hebrew and whether you speak Hebrew or not, you all have Hebrew lexicons. So you can with a little effort do this, but you have to understand that the words there have a broader and deeper meaning than what we might first conclude reading it from an English or from a Western mind. So it's important that we look at the passages in context. So this word Shema, to hear, hear O Israel, literally means when you look at the lexicon, Shema means to hear. But you know what the Hebrew word for obey is? Take a guess, Shema. Shema was understood among the Hebrews, to hear is to obey. You have read it in your King James Bible, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. No, what it's saying is that if you have an ear to hear, then do what I'm telling you to do. So there was no controversy between James and Paul from a Jewish theological perspective. Although we have wasted uh, volumes of ink debating this, this conflict that didn't really exist. They were both addressing two sides of the same coin. The apostle Paul was emphasizing the fact that, that it is faith alone that produces our salvation. And James is emphasizing that true faith will produce works. So the natural result of one falling to his knees to call upon the resurrected Christ as his personal savior is to recognize that he is in fact the Lord of your life. In other words, to put it simply, the confession of our faith should match the expression of our faith. We should be consistent. Now don't misunderstand a word that I'm saying. We are not saved because of a transformed life, but a transformed life is the natural result of one being saved. In fact, I put it like this. The new birth is a prayer of faith as a heart's confession that's based upon the revelation that Jesus is the Lord and that results in a transformation. Just as Thomas doubted, he said, I don't believe it. I saw his dead body. There's no way that guy's alive. I'll not believe unless he stands right here and I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hand. A week later, he shows up, says, Thomas, go ahead. Thomas, when coming face to face with the resurrected Christ, hit his knees and cried out, my Lord and my God. That is a Jesus moment. The apostle Paul on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians came face to face with the resurrected Christ and permanently transformed his life. That is a Jesus moment. Now I love this, this, this page I'm going to put up here because it doesn't come from a Christian website. This actually comes from a Jewish website, but it analyzes the difference between the Greek thinking uh, pistis, which means faith, and the Hebraic meaning emunah, which means faith. It says this, emunah is more than belief that certain statements about God are true. It is a belief in God, trust and reliance upon God, all of which call forth behavior consistent with that trust and reliance. So our expression of faith 
should be consistent with our confession of faith. Now, consider as an example, if you are, happen to be a member of a church that's not active, and your pastor says, oh, we, we shouldn't talk about those things, that's part of the secular world. Consider this list of charges, and it's rather exhaustive. I may have missed a couple, but this is pretty exhaustive. If you go through all of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, and you compile a list of charges of the things that God was upset with Israel and Judah over, I want you to think in your mind as I go down each of these point by point very quickly, whether you would consider this a spiritual issue or a secular issue. Whether this is something your pastor would talk about in church, or if you are a pastor, is this something that you would consider talking about in church? Okay, things that God was upset with. They were dishonest in business. Is that spiritual or secular? Yeah, it is. Actually, it's both. So that's a trick question. They ignored the sabbatical year of release. That's an economic issue. That's a personhood issue. They used unjust weights and measures. By the way, when we just simply inflate the amount of dollars in the money supply, that is an example of ungodly, unjust weights and measures. And not only are they stealing from us, but we, we, we are stealing from our children and our grandchildren simply by putting digits into a computer. There's nothing about what the Federal Reserve or our government is doing right now with this deficit spending that is in accordance with biblical principles of civil government or economics. They removed landmarks. They didn't recognize private property rights. Ticked God off. They bribed judges. Leaders fed off of the flocks rather than caring for them. They were disrespectful to their parents and elders. They didn't care for their family. God had designed it where we were to take care of our children when they were young, and when we were older, children were to take care of us. They lived for revelry and drunken parties. They murdered their children. Religion became big business. They were no longer ashamed of immorality, even celebrating homosexuality, and paraded and reveled in their debauchery. Things that common sense and God said were evil, they called good. Things that experienced common common sense and God called good, they called evil. They were proud and arrogant. Their court system became corrupt. The government was corrupt. They denied and abandoned God. And when Jeremiah would come to the temple and face the people of Jerusalem and say, repent, they would point to the temple and say, what are you talking about? We're God's people. We go to church on Sundays. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not impressed with how pretty we look on Sunday mornings. God wants to see the reality of our love for him with our obedience. Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. With our obedience and following him 168 hours out of the week. That's 24-7. Now, that's what James was emphasizing. Yo, you go ahead and talk about your faith here. Let me show you my faith. Now, here's where our pastors have that come to Jesus moment. The Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and make disciples. Doesn't say make church members. Doesn't say make professors of faith. Doesn't say make people repeat the sinner's prayer. By the way, I grew up Southern Baptist and Independent Baptist. I was weaned. I, I, could, I could give you the Roman road before I could say Jack and Jill. So I'm not, not decrying this, the importance of these, but, but that's not what we've been called to do. We've been called to make disciples. And what do we do? How do we make a disciple? We teach that convert to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. Now, folks, Ephesians, we, we will often misappropriate, Christians often misappropriate verses that really weren't intended for us. 
We, we have books of devotionals where God made a promise to David. We take it because it sounds good and it's encouraging. We'll put it in a little something and we'll apply it to us. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's really not a correct uh, hermeneutic uh, or exegesis of scripture. But, but understand that Ephesians is clearly written to the New Testament church. So everything here is directly to us. And my responsibility as a pastor is one, I'm supposed to be an evangelist. Boy, you better believe it. In fact, I have a little booklet, if of you want it. It's a wonderful book. We've had great success with this in college campuses. Just 24 pages. It's a heavy track, uh, heavily influenced. In fact, Frank Turek did the editing for me. Frank Turek, Joshua Dalva, is called Not Blind Faith, Verifiable Evidence That God Exists and Rose from the Dead. We have found this to be a real plus. Hey, we are huge on evangelism. I, I required my church members about a month ago to write out their testimonies. I wanted a copy of it. Reason being is I wanted them to consider whether they actually had one. And if they didn't, then we needed to talk. But evangelism, of course, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul? But notice, we're also called to pastor. You know what that word means? Shepherd. I want to protect my flock. You know what? I want to have strong, healthy families. I want the, the men in our church to have good jobs where they can provide for their wives and children. I want them to be free from illness. And brother, you better believe we were all over this COVID hoax about two weeks into it. And I, let me tell you, I did fewer funerals over the year of COVID and we had donuts and coffee at, at church and we had meals on Wednesday night and we, we brought in real doctors that offered real advice and we were on to hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and zinc and vitamin D early on and our world didn't change at all. The only time I wore a mask was when they forced us to do it on an airplane. And then one time my wife and I got thrown off of one because we didn't wear the mask high enough over our nose. For the love of Pete, how does that work? When you walk into the restaurant, you have to have your mask on. When you sit down, you can take your mask off. Viruses don't work that way. So pastors should have been on the front lines protecting their flock. We brought in probably a dozen doctors to speak to our people. And again, that's part of self-government. They need to make that decision for themselves. They look at it, hey, do I want to have this injection? Hey, it's up to you. That's your body, you make that decision. If you want to wear a mask, I don't care, wear 10 of them for all I care. You're just not gonna make me wear one. And then notice the last one, teachers. What is that? To make disciples. That's what we are called to do as pastors for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, for those who say, and I've heard many people say, what about my pastor? My pastor says, well, I just preached the gospel. Well, I know what he's referencing. He's referencing the apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses one through eight. But let me point out a couple of things here to you. The missionary, the apostle Paul, knew a little bit about preaching the gospel. Consider the subjects that Paul also talked about in discipling these new congregations as he was teaching from what we would call the Old Testament and he would write epistles or letters answering questions of faith and practice as now you had Jews and Gentiles synagoguing together throughout the, the known world at the time, worshiping the God of, of Israel and his Messiah. You know, for, for a Gentile coming in with a bacon sandwich, well, that was offensive to some of the Jews. So they, they didn't understand because they really hadn't interacted great. So that's, that's what they were dealing with at these epistles. But look at everything that Paul dealt with. Uh, obviously, evangelism. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. But he also talked about proper government. Paul talked about taxes. 
He talked about proper sexuality. He taught about sexual sin, homosexual sin, marriage, circumcision, church discipline, work and work ethic, integrity as business owners, charity, church organization, care for widows and orphans, handling disputes in the congregation, pride, humility, and forgiveness, gossip, cultural issues such as dress, hairstyles, clean and unclean foods, proper doctrine, eschatology, and all sorts of things. So these pastors need to recognize that Paul wrote a lot more than just 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. If you say, I want to be just like the Apostle Paul and preach the gospel, well then, amen, so do I. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing as he was preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, I'm going to circle the runway. I've got 10 minutes and I'm going to land on time. Acts 11 tells us that those disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And that term disciple or Christian both mean follower of Christ. So a Christian means a disciple of Christ or a follower of Christ. The last time that I was in Israel, and if you haven't been able to tell, I've done, I do a lot of study on the Jewish roots of Christianity. You know, Jesus didn't just show up in a vacuum. You know, these topics that he's talking about in the Gospels were long debated Jewish debates. So if you don't know the context, you, you might not come to the right conclusion of what the Lord was talking about to a bunch of first century Jews in, in every passage. But we were in Israel uh, and it was the last day. And for those of you that have been, oftentimes you go to the empty tomb on the last day and you'll be around the Temple Mount. And we were, we were in the old city, the Jewish quarter, and we had stopped for a rest. Some of the uh, tour group wanted to use the bathroom, grab a bottle of water, whatever. And one of our tour group asked our guide, Yitzhak or Isaac, uh, a question. They say, he said, why do the Jews dress so differently? Now, first of all, if you've never been to Israel, you need to go if there's ever peace again this side of the rapture. But uh, I would recommend it if you get the chance. But, um, but um, they don't all dress differently. I mean, visiting Israel is like visiting another American state. They're very much like we are. You know, you've got some that dress up, some that wear jeans. You've got, you've got uh, some that are very religious, some that aren't very religious. So it's much like visiting another state. But what this question was about was the ultra-Orthodox, primarily uh, what we call the Hasidic Jews, as they are always dressed in an obvious black suit and white shirt. But many of them dress with distinct differences. Some wear big hats, some wear small hats. Some wear knicker type pants and long socks. Some wear long pants all the way down to the shoes. Some wear long coats, some wear short coats. Now as many times as I've been to Israel, as much study I've done about the Jewish heritage, I assumed that I knew the answer to this, but I didn't. And the answer will astound you. Isaac said that they wear their clothes the way their particular rabbi wears his clothes. They wear their hats and try to imitate their rabbi and his choice. They, try, they wear their socks the way their rabbi wears his. In other words, their goal was to become like their rabbi in thought, mannerism, and behavior. Now, a Jewish rabbi didn't hand his students a syllabus on the first day of class. They were commanded to follow me or walk with me. Does that strike any chords from your memory of studying the Synoptic Gospels? 
fact, one author likened the maturity of a disciple to be measured by the amount of dust that he accumulated on his clothing from following his rabbi so closely as he watched, imitated, listened, learned, and applied his teaching. Now, the Hebrew word for walk is halak, and it means more than simply taking a stroll. That's what John was talking about in 1 John 1 when he said, if a person walks in darkness, then he, he doesn't know me. Uh, but if he, if he is of me, he walks in the light. That's your, your, your overall uh, pattern of life is one that would, would honor and glorify God. And a rabbi's interpretation of the Torah is the halakha, or how to walk in accordance to God's word. Now, if you haven't heard a thing that I've said, listen to this next paragraph. In America, we have redefined what it means to live by faith. We believe that living by faith means that we make an empty profession or recite an empty creed that we don't actually understand. Then we proceed to live our lives the way we want to live our lives, justifying our behavior in light of the world's wisdom. And then when we absolutely make a mess out of things, we get on our knees and ask God to fix it. That is not living by faith. That is, in fact, testing God. Now, listen to this, this sentence, because this is most important. I'm a, obviously, as a pastor, I am passionate about prayer. Prayer is a privilege that we have as part of God's family. But we need to quit trying to pray our way out of situations that we have behaved ourselves into. That will sink in on your drive out of Colorado Springs later, and you'll realize just how impactful that was. We need to do a better job of discipling our church members. Now, the Apostle Paul preached a trilogy of messages from Habakkuk 2.5. In Romans, he emphasized the justification by faith. In Hebrews, he emphasized the faith in the Hebrews, or the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. But in Galatians, he emphasized the justified shall live their life in accordance to faith. In Romans 10, 17, the same apostle says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So living by faith means that we listen to what our Lord is telling us in his word and we obey it and then we apply it to our lives because God's ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are above our ways as the earth is, or as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above ours and his thoughts above ours. So Christians, our families should look different. Our marriages should be different. Our work ethic among employees should be second to none at your workplace. Our integrity as business owners should be exemplary. Our sexual proclivities should reflect the Lordship of Jesus. How we handle money should reflect the Lordship of Jesus. If pastors only understood, we, can, we complain about our tithes and offerings, and yet our congregation is full of people living in houses they can't afford, driving cars they can't afford, so they can impress neighbors they don't even like. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us to work hard. Bible says to budget. Bible says to save. Bible says to invest. Bible also says that the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. But we don't teach about biblical economics. So I have Bob McEwen. Bob's a treasure in our pastor's camps. Introduces this thought concept to pastors. And let me also add, our politics should reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, another quick exegesis of Ephesians, which was written clearly to us. 
after a laundry list of sexual sins and other things that were tied to uh, idolatry that they were warned not to participate in, Paul summed it up with this. He said, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So church, have no part of, or you can actually accurately translate that, don't be a party of unfruitful works of darkness. And we aren't even giving the option for just coming out from among them and being separate. We're supposed to expose them and then stand against them. Now, I want to introduce you to a treasure in my life. This is my grandson, Roman, in January of 2021. This is my grandson, Roman, in March of 2021. Now listen to what I'm saying. You may actually be saved, but you're not following Jesus in your politics if you are a party to a platform that endorses baby murder to Moloch, Baal, and Ashtoreth, the LGBT trans butchery of our children, and the LGBT agenda that promotes theft and covetousness and communism. You, you aren't following God in your politics. You may actually be born again, but you've never been discipled to where you know to follow God even in this realm of politics. That's what it means, ladies and gentlemen, to live by faith. We're to glorify God in all that we do. Too often I hear people try to quote Proverbs 3, 5 as an Old Testament verse for Romans 8, 28. It's not. Read what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own wisdom. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways because he will uh, direct your paths. That's a biblical worldview. Lord, what are your marching orders for me in this area of life? How should I function as a husband? What is my job as a dad? How should I treat the world as an employee? How should I function as a business owner? Lord, what would you have me to do? Second Corinthians, or sir, excuse me, Second Timothy 3.16. All scriptures given by inspiration is God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. A disciple of Jesus and one who walks with Jesus day by day, studies his teaching of the truth, and applies his instruction to life since he is the Lord of all. Now, here's where the problem lies. You guys know the guy in the middle, the guy on the right, uh, George Barna in the middle. A uh, well-known, established uh, statistician for Christian topics. The guy to his, as you're looking at it, the guy on the left is Richard Land, former head of ERLC. The guy left to him is uh, Sam Rohr from American Pastors Network in Pennsylvania. Of course, David Barton is the George. And that is me at almost 300 pounds prior to cancer. It looks like a dad taking his children to the zoo, doesn't it? <laughs> But George did some in-depth study of people, Christians, and pastors. And he didn't just ask them, what is your worldview? Are you a secularist or a, or a Bible guy? Well, of course, everybody would answer, I'm a, I'm a biblical worldview. He actually tested them, gave them a significant number of questions, then based upon their answers, determined what their worldview was. Among America in 2021, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Now, folks understand, that our Constitution was voted only for a moral or Christian and religious people. That the truths that we function under, according to Thomas Jefferson, is the laws of nature and nature's God. That is uh, basically Protestant biblical understanding of Scripture. Only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. And here's why that is. 
He tested over a thousand pastors. Only one third of pastors have a biblical worldview. Folks, how can a pastor make disciples when he hasn't even properly been discipled? And that's why our country looks the way it does. We have accepted and believed in the church this lie of dualism. We have compartmentalized our lives between the secular and the sacred. We may actually be truly born again, but we think like Darwinian socialists, as that is the doctrine that's taught in modern public education and modern university. And we haven't made disciples in our churches. We haven't taught people, believers, to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has taught us. Very quickly, this is what we teach our pastors. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And quite frankly, everything we face today has been around for 6,000 years of humanity's sin, sinless, sinless, sinfulness. We may have air conditioning and indoor plumbing, but the same old sin issue, the same old bodies. And God has divided responsibility for every issue and assigned it to one of four realms of government. It begins with self-government. Genesis 1. Adam had one command, don't eat of the tree of the garden, in the middle of the garden. Then we have family government. By the way, self-government, you decide if you should wear a mask or not. By the way, self-government, only you can decide whether you trust Christ or not. Nobody else can make that decision for you. Family government, you know one of the areas that was entrusted to moms and dads? Education. Moms and dads, train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So why is it that we all as Christians take our children down to the uh, kindergarten at the age of five, drop them off, then we pick them up when they graduate university at 21, and we wonder why they become atheistic postmodernists? Of course they're going to. That's what they've been taught. Then we've got this realm of church government. This, by the way, is where charity falls under. And then we've got civil government, proper and improper civil government. Civil government, responsibility in any passage of Scripture, whether it's Genesis 9 when Noah got off the boat, to anything that Paul wrote to Timothy, or Peter wrote to the dispersed, or Paul wrote to the church in Rome. The purpose of civil government is to punish evil and to protect the good that we may live peaceably in all godliness. When a government becomes evil, that is a perversion just as a father can become perverted or a mother can become perverted. And we aren't supposed to have unlimited submission to perversion. The Hebrew, midw Hebrew, Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 told the Pharaoh, no. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told Nebuchadnezzar, no. There are times if civil government is wrong in promoting ungodliness, the response from Governor uh, DeSantis, as it should have been many times these last three years in Florida, was no. Praise the Lord for proper civil government. But I invite you all to visit our website. Everything that we teach these pastors is there and it's free. You go to the drop down menu, you can access all of our video trainings. Bob's teaching, it's all there. We have PDF notes, we have study questions. You can use this for small group, all of it's there. Uh, again, we have transcripts in English and Spanish. By the way, we're revising this, updating it. So if you're missing some of this at the moment, it will be corrected uh, by the end of the week. And then we, we deal with su tough subjects. Hey, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter riots in the middle of the Black Lives Matter riots. We were talking what what, what uh, uh, Black liberation theology is. We talked about this COVID and all this nonsense. Uh, we have all this materials right there at your at your fingertips if you would like it. Plus, oh, I just okay. This is our last conference coming up, and these are my last words out of my mouth. Invite your pastor. It begins next Sunday. It's only ninety-nine bucks. Art Alley and Timothy Bland subsidized. The rest of this is about fifteen hundred dollars a couple. 
But we want your pastor and his wife to come and spend three days with us and let us fellowship with him and try to teach him to think biblically in areas of his life that he does not think biblically. We've got some cards promoting that event. So if my wife Cindy over here or he had one at the breakfast table, we've got some of these free evangelistic tracks, Not Blind Faith. And with those remarks, God bless you. It's a privilege to be here. And I'm looking forward to rich remarks.